Hello, it's Monday, February the 21st, and this is the Andrew Pearce Show coming as ever from the Daily Mail newsroom. We love dogs, we love cats, but would you have a rare breed sheep as your pet? I'm going to talk to a businesswoman who's got just that. The 100,000 children that have disappeared from the education system since the first lockdown. How on earth could that have happened? The Queen, she's got COVID, but typically she's working on. But first, living with COVID plan, a bit of a tweak. There was a delay in the cabinet meeting, but the Prime Minister pressing ahead with the plan to say, which he says brings a great sense of national pride. They're going to lift the requirement to self-isolate for five days if you get COVID. So the Prime Minister's delayed the Cabinet meeting where he was due to agree his living with Covid plan. The meeting is happening later today. There's been a dispute between the Treasury and the Department of Health over the amount of money going to be allocated for continuing testing and for which categories will continue to get free tests. Ahead of the announcement, Boris Johnson has described Covid freedom as a return to people's freedom and what he says is a moment of pride as we begin to learn to live with Covid. I'm joined now by David Matthews, who's Professor of Virology at the University of Bristol. Professor, you're the expert. Is this a matter of pride as we begin to uh, step free from the shadow of Covid? because we're pretty 100% he's going to announce the lifting of the requirement to isolate for five days if you test positive. Well, I'm not sure it's a matter of pride. I mean, obviously, an awful lot of people have uh, unfortunately lost their lives to this uh, disease. Um, But I think it's it's certainly not... um, I don't think it's obviously a a, a silly move or anything. I think it certainly is about now is the time we need to think about the future... Uh, in terms of you know the world with COVID permanently around us, um, so I don't think it's unreasonable at this stage to start deciding that uh, maybe we need to sort of roll back to sort of pre-pandemic normality. I think the the things that I'd be uh, be interested to see is is to make sure that we continue testing of people who end up in hospital with COVID uh, as a minimum, so that we can at least keep an eye out for uh, interesting and dangerous new variants, which which yeah. may still emerge. And I think the other thing, actually, and I, I, I may be a bit of a broken record on this, but um, I think we also need to keep talking to people who haven't yet come forward for vaccination and, and try and understand their hesitancy, try and understand what's holding them back uh, and work harder to understand that so that we can get more and more people vaccinated. Because there is a small number of people who are still not vaccinated and we really need to talk to them and understand their concerns and get them, get them forward for vaccination. What about people who will say, um, my mother is older, she's vulnerable, people who have um, various underlying health conditions who think the relaxing of the five-day isolation period puts them under threat, means they won't be able to go out. Uh, the counter argument, of course, is can you hold the whole country to ransom for this, this group of people? But they are not small in number, perhaps a million or so, Professor? Well, I think that's a very difficult question, isn't it? Because, yeah, there are some people who are clearly, um, you know, they're going to have real difficulties to get infected with COVID. Um, but also that would be the case if they were exposed to influenza, perhaps, or respiratory yes. syncytial virus or any other, of the, you know, respiratory diseases are dangerous in a group of people uh, even before COVID existed. Um, so, you know, this is uh, really a political decision, isn't it? Is that, you know, this sort of, the benefits for one group of people versus the cost to another group of people is exactly what politicians are paid to weigh up, isn't it, really? You're right. At some point, we are going to have to take those very difficult decisions. 
Another question for you, Professor. Um, whatever the Prime Minister announces, and we think the, the relaxation on the people wearing masks will be announced too, do you take the view that um, people should continue to wear masks in crowded areas such as maybe a train, a bus, uh, if you're in London, on the underground? Uh, I think it's certainly something people should consider. I think certainly if I think it's probably more important to say that if somebody wants to wear a mask, then people, let people wear a mask if yeah. that's what they want to do. Um, because, yeah, it is a good idea, if you, particularly in the wintertime, if it's a crowded train, uh, it will help, hopefully, help contain the spread of other diseases, such as flu and RSV, which are, which are killers in their own right. You know, there are other dangerous respiratory diseases out there. Uh, and hopefully, in the longer term, coming back to your point about people who are vulnerable, yeah, um, this this sort of renewed focus on the idea of of the fact that respiratory diseases are dangerous, like flu, like RSV, like COVID, will mean that more people will be more responsible about washing their hands and wearing masks in crowded places, and perhaps help to suppress the spread of these other viruses, which are also very dangerous. Uh, and that will be a benefit to uh, people who are clinically vulnerable. I think on top of all that, we've got to remember there are drugs now. You know, there are drugs and a better mode of treatment yeah. for this disease than there were at the beginning of the pandemic. And we are emerging from the restrictions. But how long is COVID going to be with us, do you think, Professor? Years, possibly? Oh, forever, I would have thought. Um, it's never going to go away. And until we work some way out of uh, killing viruses uh, like this, uh, and that, that's a long way down the road. Uh, no, this, this will be around forever. You know, the virus changes a fair bit. And people can catch it and not realise they've got it and pass it on. The virus can infect animals and then come back into humans again. We're, we're never going to get rid of this disease. There will always be new variants coming forward. Um, but I think what we've seen is that the combination of vaccination especially yeah, um, and also the, the sort of uh, clinicians having a better understanding of what's the best way to treat people and better drugs means that, uh, you know, the, the disease is nowhere near as, as frightening as it was. But I think Again, to emphasize here, this idea that vaccination is, is the way out, and that has proven to be the case. Uh, even if you've been infected before or you believe you've been infected, it's still a good idea to come forward and get vaccinated if you haven't, because that vaccine will broaden your immune system's sort of idea of what the virus looks like, so that when future variants come along, you've got a much better chance that your immune system will pick it up very quickly and deal with it quickly before it becomes serious for you. So, you know... Good news, I think, for the future. But, yeah, we're, we're never going to get rid of COVID. It will be with us forever now. Well, that's fascinating to know that uh, and sobering too. That's um, David Matthews, who's Professor of Virology at the University of Bristol. Thanks so much for joining us. So the Queen's gazing out from most front pages today. It has been confirmed by Buckingham Palace. She's tested positive for COVID. The Palace say she's experiencing mild cold-like symptoms her health of course is being closely monitored uh, but she's continuing today with light duties of course she is joining me to talk about this is the daily mail's very own writer uh, robert hardman and royal biographer extraordinaire robert of course she's carrying on with her duties that's her way isn't it absolutely andrew she um as she's shown throughout the pandemic um she is very keen to play her part in uh, the, the the forefront of national life and as long as her doctors say that uh, this is fine, um, carry on, she will carry on. Um, we've seen time and again um, moments when um, I think people were, were genuinely surprised at her sort of enthusiasm for, for, for her role. Um, if you think back to, to the summer of last year mm. um, with all those G7 leaders coming into town, and, uh, and the Queen looked more sprightly and, and happy yeah. than a lot of them. She yeah. had a party for them. 
Yeah, and they were so thrilled to meet her. You could see it etched on the faces, particularly Angela Merkel, the German Chancellor at the time. Yes. Um, Robert, how do we think... We know Prince Charles had COVID, as did um, the Duchess of uh, Cornwall, and we know the Queen saw Prince Charles, what, 10 or 11, 12, 13 days ago. Is there any indication how we got it? Because she had been in HMS bubble at Windsor Castle for a long time, but I think they had relaxed um, some of the rules on who was coming in and out. Yes, that's right. I mean, at the start of the pandemic, pretty stringent uh, security um, was placed around the Queen for obvious reasons. Um, and the uh, master of the household, uh, Vice Admiral Sir Tony Johnston Burt, who's a, um, a very, um, he's a sort of upbeat, can-do kind of guy, um, got, a, got, got a sort of team together, which he called HMS Bubble, yeah. um, which were the sort of the, the, the close personal staff, and they would rotate, and um, no one could go near the Queen unless you know, they'd, they'd, they'd done the, the due period of isolation and all that sort of thing. So that was how it worked to start with. But, I mean, the Queen reflects the way that society operates and in the same way that um, the rest of uh, the country has opened up, um, that applies to the palace as well. And don't forget, I mean, part of the, the, the sort of the, 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 the mission statement, if you like, of the, of the monarchy is sort of see and be seen mm. um, and, and, and meet people. And Windsor has become, uh, while uh, Buckingham Palace is now a building site during the refurbishment work, Windsor is where investitures happen. And, you know, several times a week, you'll get hundreds of people turning up to receive yeah, their honours. Um, and you know, clearly members of the public coming through as well. So, um, you know, overall, um, it's, 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 it was sort of inevitable, I suppose. Um, that's certainly the, the, the way they're looking at it. Um, there's no, there's no sort of witch hunt going on. There's no, um, you know, who's to blame for all this. Um, I, you know, doctors could, could possibly work out whether Prince Charles could have given it to her, given that I think it was 10 or if not 12 days ago that he saw her, but you know, no one really knows. And I don't think anyone's going to spend much time finding out. Uh, and Robert, um, what of her health generally? Which we know Her Majesty just can't stand people making a fuss about her health, a bit like Prince Philip, the late Prince Philip. But we would all saw the photographs of her and the TV footage of her last week. She's clearly lost a lot of weight. Yeah, she's lost a fair bit of weight. Um, part of that's down to the fact that she has stopped um, drinking alcohol um, in, in now for some time. Um, not on doctor's orders, but because... Uh, because of um, because she's on medication and it doesn't particularly agree uh, with her, so that that may have had something to do with it. But she hates all this sort of speculation. Yes, I mean, she does. She, she's never she's 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 never been terribly um, uh, interested in in you know in, in, in if, if people if people around her um, are ill. Well, that you know that's obviously um, you know um, bad news for them. But she doesn't. She, she doesn't. She's not one of those people who's sort of obsessed with medical updates about everybody else, and she rather thinks the same should apply to her. Um, you know, there was that um, trip to hospital last October um, when when the palace sort of effectively kept it under wraps, and it was only thanks to the newspapers that it came out that she'd gone to hospital. Mm. Um, and that was because their view is, unless she is undergoing some sort of operation or formal procedure, or if she's had to cancel engagements and therefore doesn't appear in public, that at that point they will say something. Otherwise, they're not going to say something. Um, and that's just the way she likes to, to, to keep it. She regards it as, as, as private. 
And I guess um, finally, Robert, then, uh, we won't see much of her while she's got COVID, if we see anything at all. But she'll be doing her boxes every day that, that come over the red boxes that come over from mm. the government. And um, as and when she's got a public engagement again, I suspect she'll be first foot forward. Absolutely, she will. I mean, I, I would not be surprised we don't get some images this week of her right. um, still going ahead with some of her virtual um, meetings with ambassadors, for example. Um, she's still got uh, some presentation of credentials on the cards for this week. She hasn't cancelled those yet, uh, as far as we know. Um, and if those go ahead, and that she's welcoming a new ambassador from you know France or yeah. Brazil or wherever it is, um, then, then images of that that encounter, um, albeit an online encounter, will be public. Um, the next really big thing in the diary is the diplomatic reception, um, which is at the beginning of next month, when uh, it's the largest indoor event that the palace has. Uh, now, how they're going to handle that, we as yet to be seen. But for the diplomatic call, that is the big, the big moment of their year when they all put on white tie and go and have have dinner with the queen. So. Um, you know, will will that will she be at that? We don't know. Maybe it'll be Prince Charles and the Cambridges. Um, we'll have to see. But um, that's that's the next big thing. And then and then a little further down the track, what I, I would very much expect her to see her at is on March the 14th, which is Commonwealth Day. Um, no one uh, is more devoted to the Commonwealth than the head of the Commonwealth. And there's always the service at Westminster Abbey. And if that's taking place, I'm quite sure we'll see her at that. Very interesting, as always. That's um, the Daily Mail's Robert Hardman talking about Her Majesty the Queen. And if you're listening, Mum, get better soon. Thousands of British schoolchildren have become effectively ghost children. They have entirely disappeared from education in the wake of COVID lockdowns. That's according to a pretty disturbing report from the Centre for Social Justice. The report warns that um, nearly 800 schools are missing an entire class worth of children, which the Centre for Social Justice describes as a national disaster. I'm delighted to say joining me now is Alice Wilcock, who's Head of Education at the Centre for Social Justice, the CSJ, and led the research into the report Severe Absence from Schools. Alice, uh, it's been terrible, COVID, for so many people. I've often argued that children <clears throat> have suffered particularly badly because of the terrible impact on their education. But who would have thought all these months after education, a lot of them are still paying for it because they've completely disappeared. How has it happened? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I guess what what we want to say is that uh, when schools closed down, effectively the children who were on the um you know, on the brink and really needed to be in school, kind of were cut off from their support services. Um, you know, the decision to lock down um, was an important one made with consideration about the national health. Um, but unfortunately, young people who were safer in school rather than out of it were really kind of cast to the sidelines. Um, you know, severe absence has been a massive problem that's really not had any scrutiny around it for the past five years. Um, even before the pandemic, around 60,000 children were severely absent. Um, and severe absence is when a child is missing from school more often than their presence. So they miss like two and a half days a week at least. Um, but when schools returned um, in autumn 2020, we found that nearly 100,000 pupils had become severely absent. And this doesn't even t- begin to account for children who were missing school because they had a COVID case. Um, so this is a massive increase, about 54%. And, and, and how is it still going on? Because that was months and months and months ago. Why are they not back in the system, Alice? Well, so what I'm saying is these figures are from autumn 2020, so we don't actually know what's happened since. All we right. know, actually, 
um, comes from charities and Ofsted, um, who've actually, um, we, we confirmed that this is still a massive problem, but the government just hasn't got any sense as to how big um, the cohort of ghost children has grown. So they have got figures, but they haven't published those figures. Um, we've done everything we can to try and ascertain the scale from now. Um, we think it's pretty awful that the government hasn't published figures on severe absences, um, because from everything we know, there's a there's a crisis unfolding in our schools, completely hidden from sight. Um, Ofsted have said that in autumn 2021, absence was one of the biggest problems facing schools. Um, you know, they, they were still seeing massive levels of pupil anxiety. Um, and we've spoken to charities that have said over the last year, um, their case rates for attendance problems have just increased um, dramatically. And strikingly, the, the needs of these children who've become severely absent have become way more complex. Um, so, yeah, it was quite a while ago, lockdown. Um, but I guess one thing that's key to um, ascertain is that the effects of lockdown have only just started to unfold. We're only starting to understand um, what's happened. You know, the financial hardship that families face and um, we're only just beginning to see the consequences of that in our school system. And some children just totally got out of the routine of, of education in itself. Um, so it's been a massive challenge for some schools to get the children back in or to convince their parents that they should be back in the classroom. Do the ch- I was going to ask you that. A couple of questions emerging from that, uh, Alice. Do the parents know that uh, the child is missing from school? Uh, and are the children, the 100,000 or so we think have gone missing, are they from what you would perhaps call poorer, more disadvantaged backgrounds? Perhaps they also did had very poor online education during lockdown. Yeah, absolutely. So taking your first question to the parents now, um, I would say it's varied. Some parents really do know um, and they're doing everything that they can to try and get their children back into school. You know, they, they kind of deal with consequences of this. They've received attendance fines. Um, you know, I, I, Harriet's piece this weekend actually highlighted one mother um, who had basically quit her job to try and get her child back into the classroom. But the difficulty was that rather than not knowing the child wasn't in, um, she just didn't know what to do. So, you know, parents are struggling with acute cases of mental health, uh, with CAMS being totally um, over-referred to. Um, so some children are just at home, struggling, deeply anxious, deeply depressed, and parents just aren't equipped to support them. And some parents don't know. Some parents, um, you know, unfortunately, sometimes the route and the barriers to attendance lie at home itself. And so parents um, might actually be struggling to get onto universal credit, struggling to get social care, competing with loads of different difficulties at home, such that they don't really observe the fact that children aren't attending school. And some of these children have fallen completely off the radar because they're trying to support their families through the, the financial hardships they're suffering. Um, so, yeah, I think it's very varied as to whether they do now. Mm. Uh, you referred to the reports by Harriet. That was Harriet Sargent, who's written very powerfully about this in the mail over a couple of days. Can I ask you, the main point, the main recommendation coming out of this report, severe absence from schools, Alice, what are you saying should be done? And is anyone in government listening to you? So um, we think the government is trying to tackle the issue of attendance more broadly and they've launched kind of attendance consultations or alliances but they're really just looking at school attendance um, and they're looking mainly at persistent absence which is when a child is missing 10% or more of possible sessions in school. Um, obviously this is great, it's really important to focus on persistent absence but we would say that severe absence is just a different case altogether and um, you know, these children are some of our most vulnerable so as you asked, um, children who are severely absent are much more likely to be disadvantaged. In fact, schools um, in the most disadvantaged areas are 10 times more likely to miss an entire class mm-hmm. of children. That's what I thought. 
and also children with severe mental health difficulties are overrepresented. Uh, one in 10 of all the children that we identified had a mental health condition that had been diagnosed. Um, so unfortunately, the, the kind of scale of response from government, we think, hasn't really grappled with this issue of severe absence. And we're saying that the government needs to go further. Um, you know, they've, they've announced billions of pounds for the National Tutoring Programme, but these children, they're not turning up to school. They can't engage with government catch-up. Um, you know, we've had reports of um, children in the National Tutoring Programme um, who are effectively ghost children. They're not turning up, and we're, we're paying for them to have tutoring sessions that they don't turn up to. Um, so we think that it's going to be a massive underspend to the National Tutoring Programme. And, you know, if the government is serious about tackling disadvantage and making sure that we um, get catch-up for the children who really need it most, they should divert some of this funding um, to a school attendance practitioners. And effectively, um, we're calling on 2,000 school attendance practitioners to be rolled out across England. Um, and what they would do is work with each family and young person to kind of figure out what's going on in that young person's life um, that means that they're attending school and remove the barrier to attendance. Um, and we know this works really, really well. Um, we work with one charity called School Home Support, and they work uh, with severely absent pupils. And they found that when they attach an attendance practitioner to the family um, and work with them extensively, they improve their attendance by half a school term. Fascinating, fascinating stuff. Uh, a very interesting report. That's um, Alice Wilcock, Head of Education at the Centre for Social Justice, who led the research into that report, Severe Absence from Schools. And we hope if ministers are listening, they pull their finger out and do something about it. Deputy Sports Editor Matt Gatwood joins me now with the latest sport news. So, um, how interesting, Matt. The tale of two Manchester. Manchester United win a thriller and Manchester City lose at home. Yes, indeed. So, it was a, um, uh, a very good win for Manchester United uh, yesterday, beating Leeds, uh, which obviously is a grudge match uh, between the two clubs who don't like each other one bit. Uh, Manchester United went 2-0 up um, and they looked playing sailing. Um, looked like they have a, an easy day, but, uh, but Leeds came back to make it 2 all before Manchester United had to go again and eventually ran out 4-2 winners. Now, um, uh, you know, Leeds are not, uh, they're, they're not having a brilliant season, but still, to go and win in the conditions where it was pretty, uh, pretty wet underfoot, mm. not an easy place to go. It was it's just a good win for Man United, but having said all that, they are now, they're now in the box seat to, to take fourth position in the Champions League that comes with it but they have got a horrendous run of fixtures coming up in March when they play uh, Manchester City uh, Liverpool Tottenham uh, and, and as well as that they've got the uh, the Champions League this week with uh, where they play Atletico Madrid and they'll have the second leg of that so although Manchester United are in the box seat in this race of fourth I think there's going to be a few twists and turns to come yeah. and although uh, United fans might be happy this morning we'll see where they are at the end of March and City, Manchester City, surprisingly beaten at home by Tottenham on Sunday. And that was a bit of a thriller too. I think Harry Kane scored virtually in the last last gasp moments of the match. He did, yeah. So, uh, yeah, an absolute cracker. Um, and Tottenham, Tottenham have got the sort of... Uh, they've got the wood on Pep Guardiola. And obviously the player that Pep tried to buy in the summer and City tried to buy, which would have really made them almost an unstoppable force in Harry Kane and um, they, was the one who did the damage. Uh, Pep revealed on Friday that City had had four bids from him in the summer, uh, all turned down by Tottenham because they didn't reach the 150 million asking price that Spurs had put on him. Ridiculous. Well, he showed well, a ridiculous amount of money, but he showed, uh, he showed why they wanted him by scoring twice 
having an outstanding game as well, set up, set up the first goal. Uh, and yeah, scored in the 95th minute um, with Man City having scored in the 91st minute to look like they'd rescued a point. And that now means that the top, as you'll know, is that there's just three um, points in it if Liverpool can win their game in hand, uh, which is this week. And Liverpool still have to play Man City. So from thinking about three or four weeks ago, there was no title race and that City had it in the bag. We're, uh, we're back on with an exciting uh, yeah. end of the season in store. And I'm breathless with excitement about it, obviously. I can tell, I can tell. Yeah, and, and, and we, finally, <laughs> we finally got a gold in those boring Winter Olympics, but good on them, Team GB. It was the women in the hurling, the men having got silver the day before. Yeah, so it was finally. I mean, uh, you know, it, not a great Winter Olympics from, for a Team GB. You're right. They wanted, you know, the minimum of three medals, and they came yeah. up came up short of that with just getting one gold and one silver, but at least it did finish with a bit of uh, with a bit of gold for Eve Muirhead and her curling team. So there was a there was um, yeah there was a bit of uh, a bit of joy at the very back end, but uh, yes, it wasn't glorious. But I think obviously the the games will be remembered for the uh, for the furore surrounding Valieva, the Russian girl, and, yeah. and and the fact that she failed her drug test, was allowed to compete, and all the pressure. Uh, on her as a 15-year-old, which was just appalling. So, I mean, no matter what GB did, that's, that's what this, these games will be remembered for. And fi- can you tell me, we've talked about this before, Matt, how are these wretched Russians competing anyway? Because they've been banned from international sporting events, but they, they just simply changed the name of the team and they're yeah, allowed to ridiculous. compete. It's, it makes yeah. a mockery of it, doesn't it? It does. It completely makes a mockery of it. And, uh, yeah, they're allowed to play under a you know, neutral flag, and, but it's, it's, it's essentially it's, they're still competing as Russia. So how they get away with that? Well, you'd, you'd have to ask Thomas Back, the head of the IOC, how they get away with that because... Um, uh, he is the one who allows these things to happen. He's the one who sent the games to Beijing, to China, despite never the been there uh, anyway. appalling human rights, etc. Yeah, et so the IOC have got a lot to answer for in all of these problems. I think they have. That's the Deputy Sports Editor, Matt Gatwood. Thanks so much for joining us. We all know that Britain's got a reputation as a nation of animal lovers. Dogs and cats, of course, are our favourites. But would you swap your dog for a rare breed sheep? Black-nosed valet sheep have become cult favourites as pets, with some owners even allowing the animals into their homes. I'm joined by entrepreneur and former Dragon's Den star Jenny Campbell, who keeps not one, not two, but three of these sheep as pets. Jenny, do you let them in the house? Yes. Oh my God! Not, not yet, not yet, Andrew. I got mine last November. I've got yeah. three of them at yeah. the moment. They're my starter flock, and I right. intend to build up to twenty to thirty of them. Yeah. I do have dogs as well. I'm a pedigree dog breeder, shower, judger, um, and uh, I saw these sheep last year on Country File, and I thought I have to have some of those. They're just, they're just wonderful. They're like big dogs, but they live typically outside and. Um, let, let's say they're a bit easier than dogs. You don't need to walk them. And, you know, if I don't go and see them today, it's not the end of the world. But I go down to them most, uh, most days. I take them some food. They romp around the paddock. They're getting much more tame day by day. I've started to halter train them. I've promised my brother that he'll be able to walk one along to the pub in our village next year or later this year. <laughs> we want so, a photograph. Uh, we want a photograph of that, Jenny. <laughs> Trust me when that happens. I'm sure somebody will grab one. Well, we're yeah. be a bit eccentrically British, aren't we? So yeah, we are. that. So what, so what makes them so attractive as pets, Jenny? Well, I mean, you've seen them. You just look at them and you go, they are, oh, they are, they are gorgeous. I have never seen anything like that in my life. 
they are they do have a strap line of the cutest sheep in the world um they were discovered by um the, the brits in the mountains of switzerland about seven years ago and they started to bring them over to this country and breed them carefully but they are a historic breed they are a rare breed and we are preserving them you know they're not here for meat they're here to um uh, to to breed them to keep their lines to show them well, I've just taken um, the wool off mine and sent them to a felter who's making uh, miniature ones and sending them to America. The Americans are going crazy for them, for the real thing. So ah. we're starting to export them as well. Well, yeah, only Jenny Campbell from Dragon's Den <laughs> could actually make some money out of her black-nosed sheep. Now, um, <laughs> well, what that's do... not the intention, no, really. But, you, but, but if you can, you can. Now, what do your dogs well, think about it? Are their noses, their wet noses put out of joint? <laughs> Well, they run up to the fence every morning um, and they're beginning to make friends with the sheep. And my aim is that once they've all settled down and got used to the fact that it's both of them that live here, then we'll be able to walk around the paddock, both the dogs and the sheep together. Mm. The sheep are just like big dogs. They're almost yeah. like old, old English sheep dogs. Um, they've got all the characteristics of a, of a large fluffy dog. Yeah. And now I'm told you're, you're, you, tell, you, you describe how their barn is more like a bedroom. Um, uh, you, I mean, you, have, you, mean, you haven't got duvets and blankets, but it's cosy with the right lighting. <laughs> I saw one breeder at Christmas uh, display a picture on, uh, on, on social media that actually had chandeliers in the barn. Now, no. I haven't quite gone to chandeliers, but it's very cosy. I wouldn't want my baby girls. They're only 10 months old, so I wouldn't want them to get cold. They want to be cosy. Um, and so, yeah, they've got they've they've got everything they need. And what are, what do you call them? Well, they've got pedigree names. Um, and so their pedigree names um, uh, they were born last year. There's an alphabet system, so all the pedigree names start with I, which is Itali, Indi, and Ilani. But I already gave them pet names when they came, just like you do with dogs. And so the twins, I've got twin sisters, and they're called Polly and Dolly. Um, oh, and that reminded me of um, uh, the sheep experiments years ago. Oh, yeah, and Dolly then the a sheep, yeah. With, yeah. The, with the same dad, and she's called Peggy. Right. And Polly, will you, Dolly and Peggy. And will you breed them at some point? Oh, yes. So the next big step is to go to the Valley Black Nose show in Carlisle in August. Right, yeah. So that's a, a, big, a big breed show where the Swiss grandfathers come over and tell you how good they are. Um, or not and uh, there's a lot of preparation for that um, with uh, washing you literally wash them in a big bath outside and blow dry them and get them prepared for the show so they do that in August and then in October it's boyfriend time Um, I haven't decided who the boyfriend is who the lucky boy is yet Um, but um, hopefully there'll be some nice um, alliances in October which will give us some lambs in May uh, March April next year and does this lucky uh, this, does this lucky you does he get the uh, does he get to um, lucky ram lucky ram forgive me lucky ram does he get to um, mm-hmm. uh, get to know Polly Dolly and uh, Peggy I think he may be the lucky boy that has three wives I think ah. that's where we'll start <laughs> it gets complicated if you have two boys you can all yes. work out how that might get complicated yeah very and we don't want fighting in the paddock do we no so no we'll keep it all calm and I think he may be the lucky boy who gets gets three wives at this moment in time. Well, and, and I just find it, do they know, do they respond to their names individually, Jenny? Bearing in mind Polly's very close to Dolly, do they both look up? <laughs> they, I wouldn't claim that they do. I know which one is which by right. the markings, which is good when I'm keeping yeah. an eye on them from a health point of view. They respond to my voice as soon as I call them, um, and I tend to go, sheepy sheep, sheepy sheep. <laughs> yeah. As soon as I call them, their heads come up from the grass, 
and they come cantering towards me because they know I've got some food or maybe a ginger biscuit for them. They love ginger biscuits. Ginger biscuits. Uh, I know one, some, one, biscuits. one of the other owners was saying how much her, her, hers love hobnobs. And when it rains, do you put them in the barn or do they stay out in the rain? Well, they are very hardy sheep. You know, they come from the mountains of Switzerland, yeah. so they can withstand all winds and weathers. And in other parts of the country, they do stay out all year. Um, I've just got them in at the moment overnight. One, because I've just taken the coats off them and they're only 10 months old. Yeah. Um, so I don't want them to chill or something. And two, because of this awful weather at the moment, you know, I don't want my sheep blowing across the paddock. So you do not. they're just in overnight. And if, if it's nice in the day, we bring them out in the day just till they get a, a, the jackets back and then they can get out outside in march and are you ever going to let them in your kitchen <laughs> well they may just trot along and happen to be there sometimes those things just happen don't they, they so do. i can well imagine that could happen which would be quite hilarious wouldn't it it would but well, we want to keep we're going to keep in touch with you jenny mm-hmm. that's absolutely for okay. sure uh, very good to talk to you that's jenny campbell who is the owner of polly dolly and peggy who are black nose valet sheep and uh, she of course you'll have known her from dragon's den great entrepreneur <laughs> That's all we've got time for today. For the latest from the Daily Mail, download the Mail Plus app. Every weekday at 5pm, you can listen to me all over again. I am Andrew Pierce. This is The Andrew Pierce Show. I'll be back tomorrow. Have yourselves a great evening and good night. <laughs>